For today, I want to take another look at this great chapter in the book of Romans, chapter 8. And I'll just let you know what the central idea is today, right off the bat, okay? Today's message is about hope. It's about hope. Can I interest you in some hope this morning, Harvest Decatur? I heard a quote this last week by the late Chuck Colson, and it goes like this. You can read this on the screen. He said, the way to understanding any worldview is by following it to its logical conclusion. The way to understand any worldview is by following it to its logical conclusion. And as I was thinking about that quote this last week, I started asking myself some questions about worldviews, and I just... You know, I'll ask you, do you, do you know why I'm not an atheist, your pastor? Do you know why? It's because there's no hope in that worldview. There's no future. Do you, here's another question. Why am I not a Darwinian evolutionist? It's because there's no hope in that worldview. According to that worldview, both of those, the world's going to burn up in about a billion years, and everything that we're doing right now and everything throughout our life will be meaningless and pointless. How's that? Is that cheery to you, a cheery thought? I don't want to live my life like that, thinking about that. I read recently about this atheist church that meets in England called the Sunday Assembly, and the pastor there, he's not really a pastor, the the guy who talks there, uh, openly preaches sermons about how we're all going to die and there's no afterlife after that. Great. That makes you want to go to church, doesn't it? And in the service, from what I read, they read lectures on science. They sing songs by Queen and by Stevie Wonder. In one particular service, they performed a reading of Alice in Wonderland as part of their assembly. And to, to be honest, the whole thing seems incredibly pointless and derivative of Christianity. Why, why, if, why go to an atheist church? That's an oxymoron, by the way, atheist church. Why would you do that if you don't believe in God? It just seems pointless. And actually, the whole thing reminds me of this. This is actually what came to mind. This Tim Hawkins song about atheist kids' songs. Have y'all heard this before? Evolution, this I know, for Charles Darwin told me so. Accidentally alive, if you're weak, you won't survive. Is that what they sing to each other? Listen, I believe, here, let, let me get to the point here. I believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. I believe what's written in the scriptures. I believe that Jesus died on the cross for my sins. And I would believe in that. I would believe in the historicity of that. I would believe in what the Bible says. Even if there's no hope for the future, I would believe in that just in knowing that Christ paid for my sins and I don't have to go to hell for the rest of eternity. But to think, this is what we're going to look at today in Romans 8. Beyond that, beyond salvation and payment for sin, God offers us something wonderful, something totally undeserved. He offers us a future. He gives us hope in this present life, hope in this hopeless world. 
And for those who have had a hard life on this side of eternity, and I know there's some out there who you might say, that's me, Pastor Tony, I've had a hard life on this side of eternity. For those who suffer in this life, their reward forever in eternity will be great. It'll be great, according to Romans 8. Can I interest you in some hope this morning for the future? Let's talk about hope, Harvest Decatur. I'll give you today four things that Christians should put their hope in. Here's the first. We should put our hope in our future glory. Our future glory. Paul says in verse 18, he says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is going to be revealed in us. In, in us or for us, I actually think this is better translated, in us. In other words, this glory is going to shine out of us and through us and flow through us. If you remember last week, the context of this in verse 17, Paul said that we are heirs. He said that we are co-heirs with Christ Jesus. We get everything that Jesus gets provided we suffer with him in order that we may be glorified with him. Okay? Now, that's important. We get everything that is Christ's. We get everything. On this side of eternity, we get the, the suffering. We get the, the, the struggle and the ignominity of, you know, being associated with Christ. On the other side of eternity, we get we get. What is Christ? We get his inheritance. We are co-heirs with Christ Jesus of eternity. For I consider that the present sufferings, what we're going through right now, are not worth comparing with the glory that is going to be revealed in us. On this side of eternity, suffering. It's going to hurt. Life is going to be hard. On the other side of eternity, glory and Nothing right now can compare to how awesome that glory is going to be. It's like you can't compare them. In 1967, the speaker and activist Johnny Erickson Tata, she dove into the shallow part of Chesapeake Bay. And when she did that, she snapped her neck, paralyzing her body from the shoulders down. How many of you all know about Johnny Erickson Tata? Have you heard her story before? can go look it up on YouTube. It's fantastic. And she's, she's been suffering as a result of that one action for the past 53 years. She's suffered through multiple surgeries. She's suffered through chronic pain. Life for her has been a struggle for decades. And yet, just listen to her testimony. God has used her mightily in the last five decades plus to be an activist for those who are physically handicapped, she has been used by God as a writer, as an evangelist. Her life story is absolutely inspiring. And if I could be honest with you, it's a little convicting that, that, that I am so, you know, bothered by these piddly little sufferings that I go through compared to her. It convicts me. And yet even Johnny Erickson Tata, she confesses that she's had her moments of despair. She's had her moments of self-pity. You know what motivates her? You know what's motivated her for the last 50 plus years? Her hope. Her hope that the future glory will not be compared to her present sufferings. Here's a great quote by her. She says, when I get to heaven, 
I'm going to push my wheelchair to the throne of Jesus. Notice I'll be walking. I'm going to thank him for every character refining work he did in me and through me because of this wheelchair. And then I'm going to ask Jesus to send this wheelchair straight to hell because it was only needed. It was only relevant because of the wreckage of sin. Amen, Harvest Decatur. Does that inspire you? That is a woman who is hoping in the right thing. Her hope of eternity. Her hope of glory. Future glory. Now, to that you might say, okay, well, Pastor Tony, what's that glory going to look like? What are we talking about here? The glory that's going to be revealed in us. What's Paul talking about here? At the very least, what Paul's talking about is the fact that there will be no more pain and suffering in eternity. No more pain and suffering, no more hardships, no more turmoil, no more emotional pain, physical pain, psychological pain. It means that we will receive a new glorified body like Jesus's glorified body. And it means that all the goodness that we experienced on this side of eternity, and there is goodness, there are pleasures to be had here. But the things that we experience here, they'll be experienced 100 million fold in the presence of the Lord forever for eternity. Could I interest you in that, Harvest Decatur? Does that sound attractive to you? This is the hope that we have as Christians, and it's a glorious hope. Here's another thing that we should put our hope in. First of all, our future glory. Also, number two, our unveiling as the sons of God. This gets even better. This gets even better. If you remember last week, I told you about the sons of God. We talked about how we have this great privilege as the children of God to cry out, Abba, Father. Isn't that fantastic? And I told you, ladies, remember, ladies, you want to be one of the sons of God. That's part of your inheritance, just like we as men want to be the bride of Christ. This, this is our hope. This is our future. This is the spirit of adoption as sons that Paul says we receive in Romans 8, verse 15. And because of that, we can cry out to God, Abba, Father, and call him our Father. Now, Paul wants to expand on that here in verses 19 through 21. And here's, here's what he's saying about the sons of God. He says that there's going to be a kind of coming out party for the sons of God. There's going to be this great revealing. Look at, you got your Bibles open, verse 19. Let's look at this together. He says, for the creation waits with eager longing. You know, I talk about our hope, what we're hoping in. Creation is hoping for something too. Their hope is our hope. For the creation waits with eager longing for the unveiling. For the revealing of the sons of God. Who's it going to be, says the earth and all of its inhabitants. Who belongs to God, says all the plants and animals. Is it that guy? Is it that guy? Is it that girl? That girl? I don't know. Who's it going to be? And the reason creation is waiting with this eager expectation is because, you know, as human beings, we haven't been great to planet earth. We haven't done great things for this planet. It's because of Adam and Eve's sin in the Garden of Eden that this avalanche of consequences was unleashed on our world. War and pestilence and disease and natural disaster and pollution and devastation. Paul says later that creation is actually groaning 
as a result of this. They want this pain to end. Look at verse 20. For the creation, creation was subject to futility, Paul says. This is futility. Another way to translate this is emptiness. This is the same word in the LXX that's used in Ecclesiastes. Vanity, vanity, all is vanity, right? So the creation was subjected to, to futility or emptiness, brokenness is another way to say this. Not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, that is God. And this, is, of course, is a reference to the curse in Genesis 3. Adam and Eve sinned, God cursed the ground, and now weeds grow faster than grass, at least in my house. I don't know about your house. Now we have bugs that destroy our trees. Now we have droughts and pestilence that destroys our crops. God did that as a punishment for sin. It wasn't like that in the Garden of Eden. It wasn't like that before Genesis 3. But God has a plan even in cursing the ground. Okay, look at verse 20 again. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, God, in hope. Everybody see that in verse 20? In hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Creation wants to be free just like we want to be free. Now, here's a question for you. Let's, let's think this through a little bit, okay? Let's talk specifics. When is this going to happen? When is creation going to be free from bondage like what's described here? When is God going to set creation free from its bondage to corruption? Well, the book of Revelation talks about this. Jesus will come and he will set up his millennial kingdom. And for a thousand years, Jesus will reign on this earth. The book of Isaiah in the Old Testament says during this time that the wolf shall dwell with the lamb. And the leopard shall lie down with the young goat. That's unusual. And the calf and the lion and the fatted calf together. All of them... And a little child shall lead them, Isaiah 11. Does that sound like our world now? Nope. It's a new creation. Something else is going on then. Also in the next verse, Isaiah says this, The cow and the bear shall graze together. That doesn't happen. The young shall lie down. Their young shall lie down together. And the lion shall eat straw like an ox. Also the nursing child shall play over the whole of the cobra. Even snakes will be nice in the millennial kingdom. Even they'll be redeemed. And the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy them in all my holy mountain. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord and the waters cover as the waters cover the sea. Then according to the book of Revelation, after this thousand-year reign of Christ, Satan will marshal his final rebellion against God and against his people. Of course, Satan will lose. That's already understood. We already know that's going to happen. And after that, God will banish Satan and his followers into the lake of fire, and then God will reconstruct our world. There will be a new heaven and a new earth. There will be what's called the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven. Revelation 21, 22 talks about this. And we will eat once again from the tree of life, just like Adam and Eve did in the Garden of Eden. It'll be the Garden of Eden all over again, except better than that. And we'll be together there forever in the presence of the Lord for eternity. 
That's, that's creation's hope for eternity. That's what they're groaning for and longing for. And that's what we're groaning for and longing for too. This, this future, God reigning, this, this future of peace and hope, hope fulfilled and tranquility. Is that happening now? Do we get that on this side of eternity? If we elect the right person in 2020, can we bring it to our world right now? No, you can't. You know what we find here and now on this side of eternity? We find groaning. Come, Lord Jesus. This life is hard. We need you. You know what this reminds me of, honestly? Let me just give you a, a bit of an illustration, especially Romans 8, 19. Look at that verse again. For the creation waits with eager longing for the re- revealing of the sons of God. This, in my mind, as I was reading and studying this last week, this reminds me of a weird combination of the Price is Right and Narnia, Okay. Stay with me here. Y'all, the price is right. Y'all remember the price is right. It's, it might still be on. I don't know. And it, when people get their name called in the price is right, what do they do? They go berserk, don't they? They dance, jump, and run down, tackle people. It's crazy. I can envision something like this and this, this coming out party for us as the sons of God. Tony Caffey, come on down. All right, let's go. You are a son of God. And then everybody out there is like, him, really? That guy? Okay, well, okay, good job. <laughs> and here, here's where the Narnia part comes in. Because it's, you know, it's, it's the price is right. We're all celebrating, coming to the front, being revealed as the sons of God. And yet the people who are clapping are the, the plants and the trees and the animals in creation. All right, we've been waiting for this. We've been groaning for this. We've been wanting this. And you know what? When I get my name called, I'll just tell you right now, I'm going to jump 35 inches in the air like I did in high school. Because I'm going to have a new resurrection body. There'll be no more arthritis. There'll be no more wear and tear on this body like there is now. And I'm going to jump and I'm going to celebrate. You know what we're going to do after? We're going to eat coconut cream pie together. And if you're thinking to yourself right now, I don't like coconut, Pastor Tony, that's because you're a sinner right now, and you have a sin nature. When you get your new resurrection body, coconut's going to be great. Speaking of our new resurrection bodies, here's the third thing we put our hope in. We put our hope in our renewed, incorruptible bodies. It's coming. It's coming. At the end of the book of Revelation, God who is seated on his princely throne, he says this. You can read this on the screen. He says, Behold, I am making all things new. God renews all things, including these old rickety bodies that are breaking down. He says in that same chapter, verse 6, he says, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage. And I will be his God, and he will be my son. It's almost like John and Paul believed the same things, didn't they? 
I just wrote about it differently here. Just before that, in Revelation, John writes, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Can I interest you in that, Harvest Decatur? Anybody else looking forward to that? That is my hope. That, that is what I'm hoping for. And if, if you want to embrace an atheistic worldview, go right ahead. But you can't claim that. You don't have that to look forward to. And even the other religions of the world, they can't hold a candle to what is written here. This is what we as Christians anticipate, and it is glorious. Paul says this in verse 22. Notice the parallels with even what Jesus said about the end times, even what John writes about in the book of Revelation. Paul says, for we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Remember when Jesus gave that analogy, the pains of childbirth, and it's, it's the perfect analogy. This is, this is kind of dangerous, but I'm going to say it anyway. How many of you ladies, when you were bringing your children into the world, you, you said afterwards, the pain's just too great. I, I'm just, I don't, I don't think it was worth it brought the baby to you and you're like no thanks the pain was too much were y'all like that I know my wife wasn't like that what what did you say after the the pain subsided a little bit and the endorphins kicked in or whatever that hormone is after the fact you said give me that baby it wasn't that bad it was worth it in the end didn't you know I know I told you I'm treading on dangerous ground right here I'm going to go even deeper into dangerous territory. It's even true for, of, of husbands through that experience, okay? So let me just share with you my own experiences here. Uh, vicariously through R. Kent Hughes. R. Kent Hughes, he says this, Many of us have pictures of our wives after they have delivered a child, and typically the baby is in their arms and the mother is radiant. None of us have a picture of our wives in labor, We do not reach into our wallet saying, let me show you the picture of Margaret groaning in labor. Isn't the agony terrific? We don't do that. What do we do? We forget about the pain even that our wives went through because childbirth and that new baby is so glorious. It's so good. That's why this is the perfect analogy, I think, what what Paul's saying here. Because nobody in heaven right now is saying, you know what, Lord, the pain on earth was just too much. I mean, it's great being in your presence right now, and I love it, and I look forward to my new resurrection body, but, you know, the pain on earth was too much. I just, I can't believe I went through that to get to this. Nobody's saying that right now. They're saying, I I don't even remember the pain. You know, I can't believe how glorious this is compared to the little, little suffering that I went through in life. That's what they're saying. You know, Paul is a person. If you read 2 Corinthians carefully, Paul talks about this person who went up to the third heaven, which I assume to be the presence of the Lord. And Paul writes there in third person, and I think it's autobiographical. Some people think that Paul was just describing himself going up into the third heaven. And when he went up there, God 
he says, I can't even talk about it. God probably told him not to talk about it. Because if he did, then every one of us, as we're reading it, or as Paul's talking to people, would be like, give me the quickest exit ramp off this planet. Because whatever you're describing about the third heaven, I want to be there right now. Where's that COVID-19? Give me some of that. I'm, I'm in a hurry to get out of here. Because it's going to be that good. I heard a, you know, we don't talk about heaven enough. You know what I mean? We, we don't. We, we fall in love with this planet and our world right now. And I think some of that is because we're a little too comfy in our space. I heard a pastor say this last week that we don't sing songs about heaven anymore. And people used to sing songs about heaven because they were always just one infection away from death. We're closer than we think to death. And we, I think we have the illusion that we're going to live forever in this world. I've been reading this book about the pilgrims, a few different books, trying to celebrate, you know, the 400th anniversary of the landing of the pilgrims on, on Plymouth. And um, I don't know why I didn't know this before, but there were 102 pilgrims that came over on the Mayflower, and 45 of them died the first winter that they were here. Almost half of them. I never saw that in a play when I was a kid. And half the people died the first year. And, you know, they, the pilgrims, you know, they would sing songs about heaven. They would celebrate heaven. They, would, they knew that they were just one smallpox infection away or, or just a little bit of mal- malnutrition away from death. You know, as I'm reading these books, it's, it's funny because, you know, you kind of get wrapped up in it and you hear about this guy or this gal, these people, and you get interested in their story. And then all of a sudden the author just says, and then they died. You're like, well, what? You know, I was just getting into it, and now they're dead. And they don't even say why they died. They probably don't know why they died. It's like, you know, the 17th century version of COVID-19. They just died, and that's the end. And if you live in a world like that, if that's your experience day in and day out, you sing songs about heaven. You celebrate eternity. You know that life is short. You know, in previous centuries, people would sing songs like this. This doesn't date back to the pilgrims. But here's an old song. When Christ shall come with shout of acclamation and take me home, what joy shall fill my heart. Then I shall bow in humble adoration and then proclaim, my God, how great thou art. People used to sing songs like this. When we all get to heaven, what a day of rejoicing that will be. When we all see Jesus, we'll sing and shout the victory. And they sang songs like this. Tell me if you've heard this before. When we've been there for 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun. Y'all heard that before? That's good. C.S. Lewis said once about his own generation, and this was 50-plus years ago. He said, We are all half-hearted creatures fooling around with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. That's a pretty good description of our cultural moment right now. And I don't want you harvest to cater. I don't care what age you are. I don't care if you're 
six years old in the service right now. I don't want you to be a prisoner of your cultural moment. This life is short, and it's going to end, and eternity is long. And if your eternity is with Christ Jesus, it's going to be fantastic. And that's what we celebrate. That's what we should be telling other people about. You know, every time we sing that song, Bound for Glory, we've got our own songs here at Harvest to Kidder, and that's one of them. Whenever we sing that song, Bound for Glory, I can feel the energy in this room pulsate. And some of, you, some of you senior saints, if I can just say it, you sing louder than the rest of us. You're like, yeah, we are bound. This world is not my home. You feel it more viscerally than some of the rest of us. This world is not my home. I'm here just for a moment. It's all I've ever known. But this world is not my home. I'm bound for glory. Paul says this in verse 23. Let's go back to the text here. Actually, let me start at verse 22, just get a running start here. Paul says, For we know that the whole creation has been groaning mm, together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, everybody paying attention here? Got your Bibles open? Who have the first fruits of the Spirit. Everybody see that? Oh, yeah, the Spirit. I forgot. Romans 8 is about the Spirit. Paul circles back here. We have the first, what does that mean to have the first fruits of this, the Spirit? Y'all, y'all know agriculture, right? You get the first fruits, those are the first few things that you get, and then the harvest comes, the windfall comes later. The first fruits is just, just a little taste, just a little foretaste of everything that's going to come. So what Paul says here is that we now, if you got the Holy Spirit, do you have the Holy Spirit now? Did we cover that in the last couple of weeks? If you've got the Holy Spirit, then, then that stuff that the Holy Spirit does inside of you, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, self-control, that assurance of salvation, all of that good stuff that just, just radiates out of you because of the Holy Spirit, what you have right now is just a foretaste of how amazing it's going to be in eternity. Those are just the first fruits of the Spirit. Someday you're going to have the full harvest in the experience of the Lord that we'll have in glory. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit. Now look at this. We talked about creation groaning. We who have the Holy Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Paul says elsewhere in 2 Corinthians 5, you can read this on the screen. He said, for in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. Anybody ever do some groaning in your old body that's wearing out? I have. Every time you take a step and your arthritis flares up, and you whimper, oh. You know what you should say? Hallelujah, I'm getting a new body someday. That groaning inside of me, that's, that's preparing me for something in the future. Every time you get indigestion and, it, and you start to oh, groan, you know what you should say? Hallelujah, praise the Lord. There's no indigestion in eternity. 
Someday I'm going to have a new resurrection body and that, that won't be a part of my eternity. Every time you go to the doctor, every time you go to the dentist, every time you go to the podiatrist, every time you go to the gynecologist, every time you go to your gastroenterologist, I don't even know what that is. You should say, hallelujah, I'm getting a new body someday. This is temporary. And you know what? You might say, Pastor Tony, you're a masochist. Nobody does that. Come on. It hurts. Listen, that pain you feel at the dentist, at the doctor, that pain is a gift from God. It's a reminder to you that this world is not your home and that God has something better for you in the future. And you know what? Can I just say this? We need the reminders. Sometimes we get a little too comfortable in this world. And we forget that our our new incorruptible bodies are coming, that Christ is preparing that for us. And to that you might say, okay, Pastor Tony, I'll I'll try to be thankful the next time I go to the gastroenterologist. But let me ask you, Pastor Tony, I mean, it's, it's painful sometimes what I go through in this world. Can I groan over that? Can I whimper even? Yes, you can groan. Paul says you can. (laughs) It's part of the spirit inside of you, groaning and longing for the future. You know what you can't do, though? You can't grumble like the Israelites in the wilderness, okay? You can't. Can you lament the state of our world right now and your suffering? Yes. Can you murmur? Can you grumble? No. Do you know the difference between those, groaning and grumbling? What's the difference between those? We can groan, but we can't grumble. Here's the difference. The Israelites, when they were grumbling in the wilderness, they lost hope. You remember what the Israelites said? Instead of looking forward to the promised land, they started looking backwards. Oh, God, we had leeks and onions in Egypt. Remember that? And they, they lost hope. That's grumbling, a loss of hope. You know what the difference between groaning and grumbling is? Groaning has hope. Oh, you groan, but you know what? You groan upwards. I'm going to get a new body someday. You groan with hope for the future. Everybody get that? Let me say that again. Grumbling is how people suffer without hope. Grumbling is how people suffer without hope. Groaning is how people suffer with hope. And we should groan. We should groan in anticipation of our new resurrection bodies. Paul says, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, grow inwardly as we await adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Here's the final thing, too. Here's the last thing you can put your hope in, number four. Our faith becoming sight. Paul says in verse 24, For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? 
But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. This is honestly, you know, this, these last two verses don't need a lot of explaining. This is pretty clear, I think. Um, as Christians, we hope in not the seeable, but in that which is foreseeable. Right? So I, I can't say, here's, here it is. Look, right here. This is your new resurrection body. You know, it'd be nice if it was up here like a, like a car displayed at a car show and it's like circling. You know, look, here it is. You're going you're gonna to wear that someday. I, I can't do that. But I, I can point you to the scriptures and say it's not seeable right now. You can't see it with your eyes, but it's foreseeable. God has promised it. It's going to happen. It's just a matter of time. Remember what Jesus said to Thomas. You can probably see the corollaries here with what Paul's writing here. Remember what Thomas said? Unless I see with my eyes. <laughs> he said, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails, I will never believe. If I don't see my new resurrection body up here, Pastor Tony, I'm not going to believe. If I don't see God, you know, showing up right now. What did Jesus say to doubting Thomas? He said, blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. It sounds like Paul in Romans 8, doesn't it? Seeing, believing, hope is seen, is not hope at all for who hopes and what he sees. And just a reminder here from when, we, when I preached through John, when, when Jesus talks about this faith that we have that doesn't see, he's not talking about a blind, unreasonable Peter Pan kind of faith. I can fly. I can fly. That's not what we're talking about here. This is not R. Kelly, I believe I can fly kind of faith. This is God said it. God promised it. Put it in his word. It's foreseeable if it's not seeable right now. And our faith is secure. Our hope is secure because God said it. Y'all with me? There's a lot of corollaries in the New Testament between hope and faith. I hope you see that. You know, hope and faith, both of those are are based on solid securities and promises, the promises of God. This is not just some crazy blind leap in the dark. This is hearing what God says and believing it, that this future awaits us. Paul says this in 2 Corinthians. I promise this is my last cross-reference. I don't like doing a a lot of... cross-referencing when I preach, but some of these are just so good. I had to mention them. Paul says at the end of 2 Corinthians chapter 4, one of my favorite chapters of Scripture, he says, so we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away. Anybody feel like that this morning? I am wasting away my body. Our inner self, though, is being renewed day by day for this light Momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, not the seeable, but the foreseeable, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Let me just level with you for a moment here. I'm about done, and then we're going to take communion together. I want to close just by confessing something to you as your pastor. 
I'll be honest with you, in the middle of 2019, middle towards the end of 2019, I was feeling pretty good about this world and my place in it, okay? You know, got a nice house in Decatur, don't have to commute from Arthur anymore, that's good. Um, you know, got a lovely wife, we've been married for 20 years, things are going good, my son is moving into his teenage years, he's doing good, got two cars that are mostly reliable, got a steady job, preaching the word, doing what I love, Sonia's able to work now too, that Alistair's a little older, you know, things were so good, they were going so good in 2019, I was actually getting kind of restless, and I kept telling Sonia, I need a midlife crisis, I really do, can I just preempt it, can I just create my own midlife crisis? I said, can I, can I buy a motorcycle? Sonia said, no, you may not. Can I shave my head bald? No, you cannot, Sonia says. Can I go on a ski trip with my dad? Sonia says, yes, you can do that. That's your midlife crisis. Okay, that's my midlife crisis. I'm good. And 2019 was cooking, you know? The sky was the limit. Who needs heaven? Who needs a new Jerusalem? You know, I was singing Belinda Carlisle, heaven is a place on earth. I, it's right here. What could be better than this? You know what changed that? You know what adjusted my thinking in all of this? It's a little thing called 2020. And then all of a sudden, you know, COVID-19 hit. And then racial strife in our country started to stir up. And then social media, which can be kind of fun, turned into a dumpster fire of toxicity. And, and it's like the whole world came unraveled and our country lost its ever-loving mind. And I'm like, Lord, take me home right now. I'm done. Right? And, and instead of singing, ooh, heaven is a place on earth, I'm singing R.E.M., everybody hurts. Speaking of REM, there's this famous song of theirs called Losing My Religion. Those of you who were in high school in the late 1900s know about this. They have this famous song called Losing My Religion, which is kind of a misnomer. People use it to talk about their deconversion. In the South, you know what that means, losing your religion? just means like you lost your temper you're angry you know you waited at the DMV for too long and you're like I'm about to lose my religion up in here because you're, you're so agitated you know and what does that mean it means you're about to cuss or about to act out in an unchristian way and you know that that expression right there I'm losing my religion that perfectly describes the way that I have felt in 20 years I'm about to lose my religion up in here I am so agitated with this world and you stop and you, you think to yourself, what are we going to do about all this? What's the solution for all this hurt and pain and anger and suffering and divisiveness in our world? What's the solution? I'll tell you what, the solution will not be found in the 2020 election. It won't be found in the Republican Party or the Democratic Party. If you're putting your hope ultimately in that, 
Prepare to be disappointed. Here's where you put your hope. The old hymn written by Edward Mote says it best. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. Similarly, you know, those old hymns, sometimes they had these great eschatological climaxes in the last stanza. And here's what he wrote. When he shall come with trumpet sound, oh, may I then in him be found, dressed in his righteousness alone, faultless to stand before the throne. 2020 is a time right now, summer of 2020, I'll just tell you right now, it's a time to put your hope back in the right thing. It is. Jesus is coming back, y'all. He is. Get ready. Put your hope in our future glory, our unveiling as the sons of God, our renewed, incorruptible bodies that we groan for, and then our faith becoming sight. Let's pray together. Lord, forgive me for taking my eyes off of eternity. Thank you for the reminders this year through the the crises in our country, through health struggles, through arthritis in my joints. Thank you for the reminders this year that this world is not our home. And Lord, there's a tension in that. This world is not our home, but we we do love it. We do love the people of this world, and we so desperately want them to come to eternity with us. So God, even as we focus on that eternal hope, Lord, help us to be invested and being ambassadors for Christ in the here and now. This is our only time to do that. Someday we'll be dead and buried and gone, entered into the presence of God for eternity, and we won't have an opportunity again to evangelize, to represent you, to live life full of the Holy Spirit, to battle with our flesh, to even, Lord, have kids, bring them into this world and love them and raise them, to know God and fear God and represent God. So help us to use our days well, Lord. Help us to minister to each other, to our children, our grandchildren, to the lost in Decatur. And share Christ. Tell people about the future hope that we have for eternity. Lord, we love you. We remember now the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, our Savior, his death on the cross, 
made possible our salvation. Remind us, Lord, what you did for us, we pray. In the name of Jesus.